Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all of the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. And yes, we are finally back with another episode. I know you all have been wanting a little bit more of kind of our traditional type episodes, and this is one. And we are venturing into the land of pediatrics. And uh, today, we actually have Dr. Matthew Landrum coming to talk to us a little bit about early-onset scoliosis. A little bit more about Dr. Landrum. He did his medical school at Louisiana State University Health Science Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. He completed his residency in orthopedic surgery at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And he completed a fellowship in pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, Again, we talk about early onset scoliosis. We talk about kind of the pathology behind it, how to treat it, how to diagnose it on x-rays or what you see on imaging. And if this is your first time listening to this podcast or listening to the episode, feel free to check us out on YouTube. We actually have the slides that go along with the audio podcast. If you are more of a visual learner, uh, always feel free to subscribe to us on all of our social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Nailed It Ortho. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Landrum, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. So happy to have you on. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you having me. And, uh, and we we're briefly talking, you know, before we started, but I'm, I'm glad this is your first podcast. I'm glad it's on Nailed It Ortho. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited that you chose to share this moment with us. Uh, so, again, really looking forward to this talk. Same here. Thank you. I, uh, it's funny because whenever you do something out of the out of the box like this, that's your norm. You actually get a little nervous still. <laughs> it's uh, been standing up and lecturing and talking a lot and been at podiums. But, yeah, still get those butterflies. So thank you yeah. for having me. Oh, no, no problem. And we always start off with just a couple of questions, just, you know, getting to know our guests a little bit better. And we have a lot of residents that listen to this podcast, some medical students as well. Uh, but what kind of drove you into the field of like pediatrics at all the different specialties? What kind of made you like the story behind you choosing pediatrics? So it really was uh, out of nowhere. I did my residency up in Dallas at Parkland and UT Southwestern, and I was going to do joints. And then during our third year, we get to rotate over at Texas Scottish Rite, and it's a phenomenal program. And I had not had much exposure to pediatric orthopedics other than random children's calls and uh, doing some reading or exposure to kids, really. So then I I rotated over at Texas Scottish Rite under the assumption that that was going to be the first and last time I ever do pediatric orthopedics. (laughs) <laughs> and after my first month, I was hooked. I got to my, I started there 
not only doing trauma stuff, but also working with Dr. Richards, who does a lot of scoliosis, uh, well, he retired, uh, but he was doing a lot of scoliosis. And then Dr. Kim doing a lot of uh, perthes and hip stuff. And I just thought it was fascinating. And that just grew over the entire six months at Texas Scottish Right. The best thing about this job is working with kids that uh, they they heal well, they want to get better, and they're just a joy in in the clinic. Yeah, I had a really, really fun time on my on my pediatrics rotation. I was like, oh, this is actually kind of cool, you know, <laughs> like working mm-hmm. with the kids and you know how they how they just heal. You know, they'll have a bad, you know, for both on forearm fracture and then like in a couple months, it's like it was nothing was even there. Um, yeah, it was it was a really really good time. And and one of the other things that you mentioned is I realized a lot of people when they come to you know, how they choose their different specialties. A lot of people will mention like their mentors that they had in in that specialty that kind of helped drive that decision. I know you kind of mentioned some of some of your mentors or faculty that you that you worked with as well. If you had to go back and give yourself one piece of advice, we'll, we'll make it a two-part question. So one piece of advice starting uh residency and then one piece of advice when you started maybe your fellowship, what it what would you go back and say to your your younger self? Um, that's a, a really good question. And two things come to mind. Residency is not just five years. It's a, it's a lifelong process and commitment. And the relationships you have within residency, you you mentioned mentors. Uh, there are still people that I trained with in, in residency and fellowship that I talk to on a weekly, if not sometimes daily basis. So it's not just an isolated five years. It's a lifelong process and the relationships you make are going to come in for the rest of your life. And this other one's going to sound really negative, uh, but it's not. (laughs) All right, let's do it. A lot of people will tell you it gets better. It doesn't. It never gets better. It just gets <laughs> slightly different. You're like, when you're an intern, you're like, it's going to be better whenever I'm not an intern anymore. Second year, it's going to be better when I'm not a junior resident, better when I'm a senior resident, better when I'm a fellow, better when I'm a staff. It just gets slightly different. So really, uh, it took me a while to realize that enjoying the journey is what it's all about, right? There, You're going to have different struggles at different points within your career, and embracing them, diving headlong into them, and then learning from them are huge things that uh, help you. Yeah, no, that is a great piece of uh, advice. And I remember, I think I was listening to maybe a football coach, and and they were kind of had a similar analogy. And everybody's always focused on a championship, but it's more kind of enjoying the journey, just like you were just saying uh, with residency. So for those listening, remember that. It, just enjoy where you're at now and enjoy the process. So that being said, I guess we can go and switch transitions and talk a little bit today about uh, scoliosis, early onset scoliosis. We have a re- we have an episode before that just talked over adolescent uh, idiopathic adolescent scoliosis, but this is completely different. And we're going to talk about early onset scoliosis. And I guess just just starting off, what exactly is does the term mean? Like, what exactly is early onset scoliosis? Yeah. And um, this is also slightly controversial, like okay. everything we're going to talk about for the next hour. So you right. know, when when looking at this for OIT and boards, there are, are very specific things. And then you can get into the nebulous, really interesting stuff about early onset scoliosis. But it is quite nebulous because there's uh, a lot of nuance to it. And there's multiple different answers for one issue. But early onset scoliosis is actually not a diagnosis. It's kind of a blanket term. And it's any patient with a coronal cob angle greater than 10 degrees who's younger than 10 years old. 
So 10 degrees younger than 10 years old. But it's not a diagnosis because right, you look right here, congenital scoliosis, infantile, and juvenile. Those are your diagnoses, not early onset scoliosis. Okay. So in general, people younger than 10 with greater than 10 degrees of uh curve on, on the Cobb angle and in, in the coronal plane. And we'll we'll test base on that in a bit as far as imaging. So I figured what we could do is we could maybe just start in chronological order and we could talk about some about congenital scoliosis, which you're just saying is a diagnosis. So I guess why why does congenital scoliosis happen or what's this etiology and can you kind of explain or break down what what this is? That is a great question because we don't know. We think <laughs> it's, uh, you know, sometimes it, it can be genetic. It can be associated with other diseases like you, you see here, Vater, Vactoral, Clipophile, those types of things. We think it may be um, due to a vascular um, issue uh, in utero, you know, the first trimester in utero, you know, the, the five to eight week-ish range. And that's why whenever you see a patient with, with congenital scoliosis or you see a, a hemivertebrae or a bar or something like that, alarm bells need to start ringing and the red flag needs to come up because you kind of need to dive a little bit further in into the non-ortho things that can be very significant. Yeah. And some of the things that you just mentioned, you, you mentioned like a hemivertebra and a bar and and so what are these things? I remember doing questions and like having not looked at this ever at all. And I would see those as an answer choices. I'm like, I have no idea what I'm looking at. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm just gonna go ahead and pick C and continue on. So what what is, you know, what is the this bar and a hemivertebra and, and I guess what kind of causes these? And so this picture you have here is is the perfect one that actually years ago made me understand congenital scoliosis because I was the same way. I said, what do you mean? Failure of formation versus segmentation. What does that even mean? But this really go breaks it down very well. And at the top, you see those defects of segmentation, right? Each vertebrae is a different segment. And so if they don't separate and have those disc spaces in between, that creates a tether. And so you can see all the way to the left, those block vertebrae, it's basically going to be one big block. And so there's actually, there's a relatively low risk of a significant spine deformity compared to these other ones, because it's one big block. They might have a completely straight spine with just a couple fused vertebrae. Yeah. Uh, and so then the unilateral bar starts becoming a problem because it's only one side. So when you look at that picture and you think, okay, just that right side of the picture, there's not as much growth happening because the end plates or the growth, uh, the, the physes aren't growing appropriately like they are on the left side. And so that's why that left side is going to grow more and grow into that curve. And so you'll have that concavity where there's a bar and the convexity on the other side because that other side is growing appropriately. And then it starts getting a little bit more tricky. We'll jump down to the bottom where it's a defect of formation. And that's a hemivertebrae. And they've got multiple different kinds of hemivertebrae. But just knowing in your mind, is it a bar or is it a hemivertebrae? So part of the vertebrae is growing, but not the whole thing. And so that creates a wedge and acts kind of like a fulcrum pushing the spine over. On the bar, it's tethered, so it's not going to grow. Whenever it's a hemivertebrae, it's only growing on half of it. So it's pushing you into 
uh, a scoliotic deformity. And so you've got multiple different kinds, the fully versus semi-segmented, the incarcerated, non-segmented, all those kind of things. But the main thing is, is, is there a hemivertebrae? And those are a little bit easier to see, or is there a bar? But the really bad ones are the bar on one side. So it's holding everything still and not allowing it to grow. And then a hemivertebrae on the other side. So you've got a tether plus uh, a driving force. So those are the ones that typically um, get bad the quickest. Yeah, yeah. And I love how you explain that. You explain that so well. And just to just to do a quick recap. So you talked about the block vertebra where those, you know, these vertebrae just fused, you know, they they haven't they haven't um, um, segmented versus if you have it just on one side, that's what we call a bar. So that's creating a tether, like you like you uh, said. So you have a tether on one side versus if you have a hemivertebra, you have like this wedge that's just pushing because only one side of the vertebra is, is growing. So it's pushing the rest of the spine in the other way. So mm-hmm. the worst one pretty much where you have almost what they say like hundred percent risk of progression is when you have a unilateral bar on one side, which is that tether. And then on the other side, a hemivertebra, which is going to just grow and push the spine just to, to curve, you know, way more in one direction, basically. Exactly. Exactly. And the most important thing to remember whenever this pops up on your OIT and boards, kidney, heart, other things. It's, it's funny how that, how that works, but whenever they pop these up, a lot of times they're looking for, are you thinking vectoral and renal abnormalities and those types of things? Uh, they so, all develop right around the same time in utero. So if we see this, you also need, definitely need to make sure there's not other things going on with, you know, with the patient, with the, with the, with the child or newborn or, or whatever it may be. No, they're, they're trying to drag you down that path of, okay, look, look at other non-ortho things and potentially get an MRI. Those are kind of the two paths they want you to go down. And and speaking of imaging and MRIs, um, what, so, you know, this this patient has congenital scoli, what imaging do you get? You know, you talked about an MRI, do you get x-rays as well? And then what are you looking for on these different films? And maybe we can touch base about congenital a little bit, maybe, maybe. Maybe EOS in general as well as like, you know, the different imaging to get. Yes. I always start with x-rays, a PA and lateral full spine radiographs like you see here. And then you're able to assess not just the spine, but you're also able to assess the uh, the rib cage as well, which I know we'll probably talk about thoracic insufficient, those things in a little bit, but you can see all those things as well as whenever they get a little bit older and it's a standing radiograph as opposed to you know a one or a two-year-old, you need them supine because they can't stand or they can't really uh, follow directions. I also like to make sure that they don't have a limb length discrepancy that's yeah. causing a slight scoliosis in the lumbar spine because um, that can happen too from a limb length discrepancy. And so is it the chicken or the egg? You need to kind of figure out is this, be, you know, they have one leg longer than the other creating a curve down there or is there a curve creating pelvic obliquity like you see here in your, your x-ray? So I always, uh, I agree, I start with uh, plain radiographs and then that brings us down, okay, do we need to get any advanced imaging? Uh, and it also helps uh, with your treatment plan. Yeah. And then so on your APs, you're basically looking for the Cobb angle. And then on your laterals, do you look? do you draw the plumb line? Or what are you necessarily looking at on your lateral? Are you just kind of looking at their overall, do they have 
kyphosis or, you know, what, are, what is in your eyes, what are you looking for? Mm-hmm. Uh, a few different things. So I'm definitely looking at the sagittal contour. Are they hyper or hypokyphotic? Uh, are they having issues with lumbar lordosis? Do they have some kind of, a, do they have flat back? Do they have some type of uh, shift of, like you said, the plumb line? Are they shifted forward? Are they shifted back? Anything like that? Because when it comes to um, idiopathic scoliosis, a lot of times it's going to be a, a hypokyphotic uh, deformity, especially in the thoracic spine. Um, so I'm looking mostly at just the sagittal balance. And if you notice that there's a scoliotic curve with a lot of kyphosis, uh, you worry about that because a lot of times the idiopathic scoliosis will be hypokyphotic. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And one of the other things that they always mentioned in questions was the RVAD and never spelled it out for me. And I remember <laughs> as a, as a, it's like a first year going through questions and I heard about the Cobb angle. So I was confident in that, but I never heard about this other angle and it confused me every time. So I'm sure there's some other people listening to this that are very confused about what this RVAD or the, the rib vertebral angle differences. Can you, can you kind of talk about that and, and maybe it's importance. And then when do you measure this? Cause I, I don't necessarily remember measuring this. And when we're talking about adolescents, but maybe we do in kids when they're younger. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's for younger kids, exactly, for infantile idiopathic scoliosis. So this isn't necessarily a kid that has a hemivertebrae or a bar, but if you have that kid that's zero to three years old that comes in with a scoliotic deformity, uh, then your your two things, well, you look at Cobb angle, absolutely. Um, a larger Cobb angle is uh, is worse. And then you look at the rib vertebral, vertebral angle difference. And the key here is that we're difference because you're going to measure from the rib to uh perpendicular to the end plate and then you measure the contralateral rib of the same level and you can see here and whenever there's a scoliotic curve sometimes they look like they're mismatched but you want to make sure you're at that same level and then if there's a greater than 20 degree difference of that angle uh, then it's a risk of a progression um, and then the phase ribs that you have just below this, where they're either not overlapping or they're overlapping a phase one or a phase two rib, um, that's another uh, indicator that this is high risk for progression. And what I think of is why would that rib be overlapping that vertebral body? And the answer is rotation. It's a rotational deformity, right? And so if it's more rotated, and that's a more of a view uh, from like an axial CT scan mm. or an MRI. So not really one that we can see very well on plane imaging. But if you look and you see that rib overlap, in my mind, that's a surrogate for a rotational deformity. And so that's uh, why if there's more rotation, they're at higher risk of progression. And so this is telling me, okay, if if they've got a question stem or when I'm seeing a patient in clinic and they've got a greater than 20 degree RVAD or they've got a phase two rib and their their curve is greater than 30 degrees, this is a kid that I need to treat. I need to treat in the cast or some kids will be in a brace. It's not one that you can just do some benign neglect and take another x-ray in three to six months and expect it to be better, which if they don't have an RVAD greater than 20, phase one rib, and their scoliosis is 20, 25 degrees, I would not do anything. 
and say, okay, we can, we can wash this, see them in a few months, take another x-ray. But with all of those other risk factors, I would talk to them about a cast. Mm, okay. So just to summarize, we have our plain x-rays where, you know, we're looking at their coronal plane alignment, you look into the Cobb angle, and then your laterals where you're looking at their sagittal plane alignment. And then here on a CT scan or an MRI, we're looking at the rib vertebral angle difference, and that's going to help us measure our rotation. So, you know, this is on the AP. This is on the plain x-ray. Oh, on the plain x-ray. On the plain x-ray. Yes, sir. We are, um, we got our rib RVAD, and that's going to help us measure the amount of rotation. And so do you pretty much get an MRI on, on everybody with congenital scoliosis? And then if you do, what are you looking for? Yes. So, um, the kind of the rule here is that they're younger than 10 years old and they've got scoliosis. The, the answer you click is they need an MRI because there's such a, a high risk that there's something else going on. And that's the Chiari malformation, uh, syrinx, uh, tethered cord or split cord. Uh, so all of those things are associated and it depends on who you read. Uh, but you can kind of just say, okay, about 20% of, so about one in five of these kids will have one of these things. Okay. Uh, some people say it's down in the teens. Some people say it's more like 30%. And so just, just knowing that it's, it's significant, um, means that we need to get an MRI on these kids. So any kid younger than 10 years old with scoliosis, you should be, uh, leaning towards getting an MRI. That being said, what do I do in practice? Um, I'll have a talk, I'll have a discussion with the the patient and the parents, because a lot of these kids will need MRIs under sedation. And I don't take sedation or anesthesia lightly in these kids. And so some of them have got a pretty small curve, you know, less than 20 degrees in between 10 and 20. I may see them back in a few months and take another x-ray. And yeah. if it's if it's the same and it hasn't progressed at all, then I might we all kind of have a uh, discussion together and joint decision making say should we pursue the mri or should we hold off and if there's any sign of progression then we jump to the mri it also lets you get to know the the kid and the parents a little bit more because there's a lot of rapport that you need to build whenever uh you're going to be seeing these kids for 10 15 years and getting to know their parents as well yeah yeah that, make, that makes total sense and so you know we talked about congenital scoliosis and you know you have to definitely be on the lookout for other things other congenital uh, anomalies that may be going on any difference between when we're looking at like infantile you know less than three years old per se or, or juvenile scoliosis that like we need to know specifically like oh when you when you think about infantile you should think about this and when you think about juvenile maybe you need to consider these factors definitely so uh when it comes to infantile that's where you're RVAD and your phase ribs will come in. And so those are, are where you're saying, and, and definitely an MRI there. Yeah. Um, and that's when you're saying, okay, should I treat this or not treat this and just observe it? Uh, whenever you're getting a little bit older into the juvenile area, still an MRI uh, and still looking at uh, kidneys, heart, uh, and 
a lot of times they'll have, if they've got uh, vater vacuole and they have the anal atresia or the esophageal issues, those will be noticed way earlier, right? Because those right. are kind of things that you need uh, yeah. to, to, to be compatible with life. Yeah, and so very true. The, scoli the scoliosis comes along with that. But those things would be known before. Uh, but in the case of um, where they show up to your clinic with some scoliosis, they might have something like a horseshoe kidney um, or a, a PFO, something a little bit smaller. Uh, I say that smaller, you know, that's, uh, it's still a, a renal or a, a heart issue, but they can also have, you know, the, the radial deficiencies or the extremity deficiencies too, but those would all be noticed. These, um, this is where, whenever they start getting a little bit older, I still worry about those things, but I worry more about something within the cord, like a syrinx or a Chiari, um, yeah. or a tethered cord. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. And so I guess one of the other questions on the other side of things, you know, in some of the developing countries or people that don't necessarily have access to healthcare, what happens when, when this, this goes untreated, like the, you know, the scoliosis, it was just overall, just give it a whole blanket or congenital or infantile, infantile um, scoliosis just goes untreated. So what, I guess, what's the natural progression in that, in that case? It's very poor. Uh, and yeah. like you had in the last slide, and your spine grows rapidly within the first five years. And spine growth is kind of bimodal. It's that first five years, you've got a huge increase um, in your your spine height and uh, the room within your, your thorax for your lungs, because you need those alveoli to develop in the first couple years of your life to allow for um, your ability to have respiratory function when you're an adult size. And so whenever you start getting significant scoliosis, 80, 90, 100 degrees, and it starts uh, really impacting your thoracic cavity, uh, as well as you can have rib issues, you can have uh, rib fusions or the collapsing parasol deformity that uh, is in the SMA and neuromuscular population. Uh, that has a twofold issue when it comes to um, this term thoracic insufficiency syndrome. Um, not only from within where the, there's not enough alveoli and they don't have the room and they kind of get almost equivalent of an emphysema type issue, yeah. uh, but also the ribs aren't uh, functioning appropriately and there's not enough space uh, in the thoracic cavity. So that's whenever they start going down the uh the path of thoracic insufficiency so they they cannot get enough air uh exchange or oxygen exchange to support the rest of their body and so that's why it's, it is associated with significant morbidity and mortality um that these kids with they did studies uh go well back that looked at mortality rates of kids with the younger kids with scoliosis versus kids with uh, AIS. And there's a significant higher mortality rate in the younger kids with scoliosis compared to a normalized mortality rate in kids with AIS and older kids. Um, so that's where you have the cardiopulmonary issues, the respiratory issues um, that, that can cause the long-term problems. And that's why thoracic insufficiency and early onset scoliosis uh, is a We've made huge strides in the treatment of this, 
but we're still working because there's a lot of issues with hardware and and things uh, long term that we can talk about more. But um, that's that's why, like you said, in the developing nations and if things go left on just if they're left untreated, they can have a lot of issues as they age. Yeah. And with the thoracic, every picture that pops in my mind every time is at least when I've seen on slides has been, you know, you know, you know, patient that has really bad scoliosis and a bunch of fused ribs. Like, are you seeing the fused rib is like, is that like very common, commonly associated with the thoracic insufficiency syndrome? Um, it, yes, yes, it can be. Um, and it depends on the syndrome. Okay. Um, and then kind of where you are in the nation and in the world as well. Um, and, and so that's why, uh, taking care of those with thoracoplasties and, um, sometimes even having the instrument, the ribs to have them expand more, uh, is really important and doing that early, uh, to allow for the lungs and the alveoli to develop appropriately. And and, and speaking about, about these kind of different instruments and expanding. I remember when I was an intern, all I, I just thought there was posterior spinal fusion with this <laughs> screws and rods. I saw, I thought that was it. And then I realized there are way more things and way more things that have been uh, invented and, and used, especially for treating scoliosis. And I, I'm sure I missed out on a whole lot of things uh, when we're talking about kind of the history of scoliosis. But can you kind of just take us through a history of the treatment of scoliosis. So can you kind of take us through like the treatment of it and I guess how things have gone through time. And then I always got confused with the, with these like the vertebral expandable prosthetic, like the, the, the vector devices versus the Harrington rods and what the difference was. And I was always confused about those. Can you kind of just break some of these things down for us if you, if you don't mind? Absolutely. We'll need more than an hour. But yes, because the, the, the history behind this, I just I'm I'm kind of a nerd. I just find it yeah, so fascinating. It. Um, right. So you've got Dr. Meta, who uh did the RVAD and phase ribs and the, the meta casting and those kind of things. And um, so whether you can do a cast in like an infantile kid, uh the infantile idiopathic scoliosis, or you can in an older kid, you can do bracing. Because you, what you want to do is you want to try to delay operative intervention for as long as possible for a couple of reasons. And we're learning more about that now. And, and Dr. Sankar uh, and them, they kind of came up with the uh, law of diminishing returns. So once you start implanting these devices, you can get good expansions, but then things start getting stiff. So you yeah. don't get as much later on down the road. Um, and then, like I said, here then in the 60s, uh, the Harrington rods, they placed uh, these actually they were special kind of Harrington rods because Harrington rods were used for scoliosis. But then they made these special ones that were threaded. And so yeah. then they would go and every six months they'd come back and they would turn some more of, on those threads to longitudinally expand the spine. And then so th they were doing that with the Harrington rods. <clears throat> And then uh, Dr. Campbell, uh, actually down here in San Antonio, um, they were looking at the issues with the rib fusions and thoracoplasties. And he just, I believe it was just like a, a Steinman pin or a K wire. And he basically wrapped it around one rib, pulled it down, wrapped it around another rib and just pulled the ribs apart. 
And then he kept sequentially doing that every six months to try to get more room for the lungs and improve the the FEV1 and FEC, the forced vital capacity and all those kind of things that we've all tried to forget from med school. (laughs) I was going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, and then he developed that there's been multiple iterations of it. Then he came out with the vector, the vertical expandable prosthetic titanium rib. And that uh, at the bottom right of your slide here, you see you've got the hooks at the top. And then within that uh, that thicker portion, you've actually got an expandable. Uh, it basically they're overlapped. So there's a piece within the outer shell and you can expand. And what you have to do is every three to six months, depending on their age, sequentially, they have to go back under anesthesia. You open up right where uh, that area is and you can manually expand them and so they not only have the vectors that were uh, made but also traditional growing rods and that's essentially like whenever you do a spinal fusion you've got the rod uh coming from the the cephalic portion down then uh the caudad portion up they actually overlap in the middle and there's mm-hmm. a side to side domino connector and so every three to six months you go back and you can ex- you can unlock one screw of that side to side domino connector and expand. Okay. The problem with that in, in both of these is, well, there's multiple that we've seen. You've got the complications right here, anchor malfunctions, right? Whether you're at the pedicle screw or the pedicles up top and the pedicles at the bottom, you're out on the ribs, which the vector was big on the ribs. And you know, in an SMA kid that's non-ambulatory, you can go rib all the way down to the pelvis. But if you're pushing up and putting a lot of force on those ribs, the anchors can can go through the ribs. And so then you need to revise them to either other ribs or actually to the spine. You need a repeat anesthetic multiple times a year for years. And they actually just came out with a really good article about uh, the hidden cost of early onset scoliosis. And it kind of goes into what is what are these repetitive anesthetics doing uh, for the growing brain? Uh, the multiple admissions for uh, a kid's psyche, as well as a family's psyche. You know, it's a yeah. lot to go through for years at a time. It's a significant complication rate. If you're making the same an incision in the same area multiple yeah. times a year, you're you're at risk of wound dehiscence and infection and all those kind of things. It's uh, it's a difficult answer. And so then they came out with these magnetically controlled growing rods, which uh, we're very hopeful about where you can put the anchors in the top and the anchors in the bottom. And actually in between is a magnetic rod, much like the, the nail that you can do in the femur or the tibia yep. for limb length discrepancy. Um, you can do that between pedicle screws within the spine. And then the patient comes back to clinic, you put the magnet over it and you can just lengthen them every few months in clinic. But then you know, you're also beholden to if the spine's getting stiffer, um, is the motor going to be able to overpower the stiffness of their spine in order to expand uh, enough to keep growing that spine? So that was the brief, the most brief I could be. <laughs> <laughs> and and so that last thing was all the magic rods you're talking about. Correct, those are magic rods, and and. So one of the things that I, it took me a while to not took me a while to understand, I just didn't didn't realize is that in AIS we're talking about instrumentation where you're putting 
pedicle screws in the bone and you're attaching the rods to those, you know, to those screws and getting your correction through through that. But here, these are actually attached to the ribs. It's like you're you're mentioning, you know, a little bit earlier, uh, or the like a rib and a pelvis, and that's kind of how you're getting. You know, that's uh, not fixation points, but th- those are kind of how you're able to um, guide the growth of the spine. And exactly exactly especially in the younger kids uh i like to try to stay away from the spine because i don't want that spine to get stiff so i'll try to go you can go ribs to pelvis ribs to spine or spine to spine but yeah they're all anch- different types of anchor points and is there i know earlier we mentioned um we mentioned some of the some of the with congenital the ones that have a, a really high progression uh, rate is there any times that you would consider that you would be doing a you know a spinal fusion in in these patients that have like congenital scoliosis I, I know we just mentioned we try to stay away from the spine if we can but are there times where we should just go ahead and fuse the spine um short answer is yes it's really <laughs> tough though it's, it's okay. the, your your indications would be for something that's going to be rapidly progressive like a, a hemivertebrae or with a contralateral unilateral bar um or there's like at the l5 l4 level where there's a, a boatload of takeoff that from the lower lumbar spine that's then going to cause a compensatory curve up top so then if you wait, you're going to actually going to have a compensatory curve and you're going to have to do a longer fusion than if you were able to just do a hemivertebrae excision and a yeah. short segmented fusion. So I wouldn't want to do kind of like when you're thinking of AIS, am I going in that seven to 12 level uh, mm-hmm. range? I would, and they, they've come out with a, a paper recently of looking at single level fusion versus going two up and two down and, and that it's safe to go shorter even whenever you've got the hemivertebrae, if you take care of it early before there's a huge deformity and a really bad takeoff, you can try to go in and take that hemivertebrae out and then just do a very, very short segmented fusion. So you're not taking away from the spinal growth, uh, especially in the chest cavity. And it's really, it's a lot safer to do a hemivertebrae excision. I, I say it's safer. There's significant risks involved anytime you're doing that. Just due to the nature of the your real estate. Uh, but down in the cauda equina area, there's there's more forgiveness. The nerves move a little bit more, rather up in the, the thoracic cavity where you're working right around the cord. And and another question is when we're talking about fusion, we're talking are you are we talking about, you know, just you know, getting just fusing the bones and not putting metal or hardware in there, or we're just talking about just fusing it and putting metal and hardware in there. Like um, instrumentation. In theory, you could uh, do a non-instrumented fusion. I have never done that. Uh, okay. I've read <laughs> read about it, and I right. know that that some of my mentors have done that. And essentially, what they would do is they would go in and they would fuse, and then they would leave a patient in uh, a cast or a brace for four to six months to allow them to fuse. And that would be you know a younger kid where you're trying to avoid having. Uh, instrumentation in there. Okay. And the, so what I've always uh, done would be an instrumented fusion. And then another thing to to think of is if you're doing an instrumented fusion in a very young kid, even if it's short segment, you get this thing called crankshaft. 
And that was something that they would say it a lot in residency. And I had no idea what they were talking about. Yeah. But what it, what it is, is essentially you're especially in young kid, you're stopping the growth on the back of the spine, but the front of the spine is still going to grow. So it's going to crankshaft up like that. And the front of the spine is going to continue to grow and yeah. the back of the spine is going to be tethered. So it's actually going to act like a, a, a bar but a posterior bar instead of a unilateral bar mm. causing a cob angle, it's more yeah. like a posterior bar, but we're creating it. Ah, so that's why, you know, the, I'll read a book and they'll say you may do anterior, a combined anterior and posterior spinal fusion just to prevent from that crankshaft phenomenon that you're, that exactly. you're discussing. Exactly. I, you... felt, I felt smart and cool saying crankshaft, but I never knew what it was <laughs> until finally one day I sat down and said, you know what, I'm going to figure out what this crankshaft they're talking about is. Yeah, yeah. No, I just learned it today, just now. <laughs> that <was> great. <laughs> um, all right, cool. That, no, that's awesome. That was a good uh, overview of all you know, all the, some of the history and the different, uh, the different instruments that can be used for these for these patients. And so, maybe we can talk about like, so how, what is what is your treatment algorithm for congenital scoliosis? And we kind of just discussed a little bit about this already, but maybe I guess for. Uh, repetition sake, we can we can discuss it pretty quickly, and then and then we'll talk about the treatment for infantile scoliosis next, and go from there. Um, and honestly, when it comes to congenital scoliosis, I try to do nothing okay. until I have to do something. Right? You do your the appropriate imaging, the appropriate workup. Bracing doesn't work. Right? This is a bony deformity. Casting doesn't really work. This is a bony deformity. What it, whenever you want to do a brace or a cast, which I have done before in these kids, is whenever there's a compensatory curve. So, right, you've got uh, something going on. Let's just say you've got something going on in the thoracic spine. Their lumbar spine, their bony anatomy is normal, but they're trying to stay balanced. So, a, a lumbar curve is happening. And that's more of like in uh, the, the idiopath where you, okay, you can throw a brace on to try to prevent progression of the compensatory curve. Mm-hmm. Um, but then once, once they start getting uh, that takeoff is where they're, they're going to push you to do something. And that's whatever you have here. Ideally you get them to greater than 10 years old before you have to do anything. Some mm. people will go down to eight years old. Uh, I try to stay conservative and get them into double digits. And so you can do a, a isolated posterior fusion because okay. if you're getting, getting younger, then you're worried about that crankshaft and where you would need to go anterior and posterior. And then the hemivertebrectomy um, can be controversial, right? You can do the early ones, especially if it's a young kid in a really bad area where they're getting a lot of takeoff, you can do a short segmented fusion with a hemivertebrectomy, or I, I use it if um, they've got an isolated curve that's throwing their balance off, their coronal balance off. Then what I'll do is I'll do a hemivertebrectomy, and I like to actually go in and, and go down the pedicle on that one hemivertebrae. And what you can do is you can put an awl in there and use that in order to kind of Mm. free and use that as a joystick almost. And then you can shell out that hemivertebrae 
and take out as much as you can and then uh, compress down and bring that down. Oh, that's pretty cool. I've never seen, never seen one. Yeah. And that's why I I try to wait until if, if they'll let me, if their body will, 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 their spine will allow for you to wait. Then I try to get them to greater than 10 years old. Okay. And I I guess that's, that's kind of somewhat similar with, uh, with infantile, some of the numbers, um, that they ask us, are there, are there any numbers where you're like, you know, this, this angle is, this degrees like this should we should probably go ahead and, and do this instead of, of instead of waiting um yes whenever you get to like you have here whenever you're getting to uh 30 plus degrees is where uh i i want to get them in a cast when it comes to infantile idiopathic scoliosis and and when it comes to casting we do the the metacast or the uh it, that wrote on the risser table uh mm-hmm. i don't know if you've seen one of those they're pretty interesting yeah. how how it, how it happens um but that's whenever i'm thinking cast and then i'll change the cast one month for every year of life so if they're three years okay. old let them be in a cast for three months two years old two months one year Hmm. one month but like you have here there's concern with multiple anesthetic events so you're trying to hold off for as long as as possible um i try to do that before ever jumping into any kind of surgery uh because if you can get that cob angle down like you have here that's a beautiful progression of uh scoliosis to in cast to to out of cast you've got a nice straight spine um but even if you can get good correction or at least improvement, and then you've bought yourself six months, a year, that allows for um, you to get a little bit more real estate if you are if you need to place pedicle screws and magnetic rods. Um, and it, it pushes you out and makes the anesthetic slightly safer. Yeah, yeah, no, this has been, um, this has been great. I, you know, I've definitely learned a lot about uh, I guess early onset scoliosis, but then, you know, congenital and, and infantile, anything, is there anything else about, um, maybe juvenile that may be any, any different at all that you may, your algorithm may change by any chance, or is it kind of somewhat similar, still try to get them to double digits and then maybe just do a posterior spinal fusion if you can. Mm-hmm. You try sometimes it just, it just doesn't work. My algorithm's slightly different. I don't go and do casting. Um, I will do bracing. And so uh, they've got multiple different kinds of braces, um, but I will, I'm pretty aggressive when it comes to bracing. So you get your MRI. I do not have casting really in my algorithm of a, a six or a seven or an eight year old, but I am very aggressive when it comes to bracing. Uh, so I definitely try to get them in a brace greater than 18 hours a day. Um, but then sometimes that curve's just significant, it's refractory, the bracing, it's going to be progressive. And that's whenever um, I try to do the magnetic controlled growing rod mm. um, because I want to give that an opportunity to fail uh, because majority of the time, if you get them to be an older kid, then 
it's going to work and it's going to work for a couple of years. And then you're going to do a definitive fusion when they're 10, 11, 12 years old. But sometimes it doesn't work. And sometimes you have to bail out to uh, traditional growing rods or something of of that sort. But unless they've got a severe kyphotic deformity or their soft tissue envelope is not going to allow for them to to take a, a magnetically controlled growing rod because they're very thick because they have to have the magnet and the motor and everything right. like that. And so those kids with, with not a great soft tissue envelope, sometimes uh, you might have to do work with your plastics colleagues for some tissue expansion. Um, but yeah, that uh, those would be the reasons why I would not try the magnetic rod first, but the okay. really, the big one is kyphosis. Okay. All right, cool. Again, Dr. Landry, I think this has been great. You know, we, we discussed multiple different topics and uh, even since we talked about the history of, of treatment. We talked about what to look for in imaging, what to look for in MRIs, different algorithms. Is there anything else about, you know, early onset scoliosis that you want our listeners to um, take home or any anything else that you'd like to, to mention before we wrap up? Uh, from... I mean, from my standpoint, I find it fascinating because we don't have this completely figured out yet. Uh, and there's other techniques that we didn't even talk about today, like the Shilla technique, um, that they're still kind of in their infancy and they're developing. Um, but I just think that any uh, any you know bright, interested individual, please come and and hop into any of the study groups and and try to figure out how we can best help these kids. It's I've, I find it fascinating and difficult. That's awesome. Well, well Dr. Landrum, again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you, having you on. Uh, for those that are listening um, that that can follow you, where can they follow you at? If you want to follow you on Twitter or wherever, how could they see what you have going on? So I, I do not do much online, but I do have yeah. a Twitter, actually. It's at Matt Landrum, MD. I had to just look that up because I, I get on there and I follow, I follow a lot of journals and, and actually yeah. uh, a lot of LSU sports and MMA, yeah. but um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so uh, yeah, you can follow me there. I don't post much, but I do look at and try to keep up to date with things. Yeah. Did you watch this? Uh, it assigned it, it assigned your prayer fight last weekend. I, I sure did. And actually I was there. <laughs> Oh. For their first first one in Madison Square Garden, really? When it was when it was them, and then you had my, uh, Dustin Poirier and Michael Chandler fighting. Yeah. So I was there for I was there for the first one, but I did get to watch the rematch this weekend. Oh man, that's awesome! Yeah, I, oh, I watched. Yeah. I'm a big MMA guy too. Uh, well, again, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Those that are listening, please hit the subscribe button, leave a review, let us know how much you enjoyed this episode, and uh, we will see everybody next time. Another episode of the Nail It Ortho podcast. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed uh, making this episode. Uh, early onset scoliosis, there's a lot of it, and we tried to cover it the best that we could. But please go and leave a review, leave a rating, let us know how much you enjoyed listening to this episode. And until next time, we will see you soon. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. 
You'll learn all of the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com.